I think we all know, I think it's true uh, that um, to have proper expectations of whatever is important for its success and joy. And we know this is the case in marriage. In marriage, to have right expectations about what it's like is, is very, very important, instrumental, it, it, at least initially getting off to a good start. In premarital counseling, it's always, I try to encourage the, the couple, it's like taking off the rose-colored glasses, want you to have right expectations. In fact, a book was written called, What Did You Expect? Great little book on marriage, just helping people understand, well, what did you expect out of this sinner that you just married and the one that they married? Uh, Carol and I, before going overseas to Austria uh, at the beginning of our marriage, we had certain expectations about what ministry and missions were going to be like. And we thought we had a decent handle on it, believers for a few years. And, and uh, Carol kind of likens our expectations, though, a little bit to the uh, sound of music. You know, the hills are alive with the sound of music. And, and we went over there thinking it's an adventure for Jesus and, and we're going to meet maybe the Von Trapps. And uh, we think it's really going to be sweet and enjoyable. And our expectations were, were really quite immature. They were really quite weak. When we got over there, uh, we didn't meet the Von Trapps. They actually moved to America, of all places. And, uh, but we, we, we met no apartment. Had to have a rented apartment with no heat for January, February, and March. Two little space heaters that we fought to hug uh, in the night. The kids were sick. Uh, little money, a scant knowledge of the of the language, a difficulty in adjusting to the culture, uh, great homesickness. It, it was like jumping into a cold shower. We just weren't ready for it, and it really made for tough sledding for the first little bit of that of that mission. What did you expect when you chose to follow Jesus? What did you expect? Did you think it was going to be all joy and ease and peace? And what would you tell somebody now? So if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a while, what would you say to somebody? If they say, well, I'm really thinking of following Jesus, what can I expect in this endeavor? What would you tell them? What would you describe to them? Well, Jesus, I love Jesus' honesty in saying it as it is. And sometimes we come at these passages and they are sobering, they're bracing. But, but he's honest in what he says to us and gracious. He, he wants to prepare us to ready the disciple to follow well. How, what's it going to be like, Jesus, if I, if I want to make you and, and follow you as Lord, what's it going to be like? Well, he explains it to us. And I just want to touch on, on, on three little points briefly in the sense of first, we're going to find that, yes, yes, you can hear it. You're going to have conflict. And he's already said this, but he's repeating himself now. There's going to be conflict and opposition, particularly from your family. But, but then secondly, the life of a disciple is a life pursuing Christ in love, making him preeminent making your love for him absolute above all things. I mean, that's significant. It's not just precision in doctrine. It's a command to love him above all things. But then what he does, and Jesus keeps doing this, if you notice. He's so gentle with us because he'll bring some hard, sobering words to us, but then he encourages us. And we are to inspect, expect 
rewards, satisfaction, and honor at the end. There are rewards that he promises, that he holds before us as encouragement. Not as if we're mercenaries, but that, that his graciousness to draw us into the honor at the very end. So turn with me, if you will, and we're going to look at these three, three things individually, and we'll read out of Matthew 10, 34 to 42. And I think you'll see um, them as we go through the text. He says this. He wants to correct our thinking. Now he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. I think you see and you hear the honesty here. So the first thing he says is the disciple. The disciple will face opposition. And, and he says it with a certain figure of speech. It's a Hebrew, it's a Hebrew figure of speech when he says, don't think I've come to bring peace. I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. He's trying to challenge. He's trying to correct. He's trying to alter our way of thinking. Now, now you know, at the time, the Jewish leadership understood the Messiah to be a bringer of peace. They, they were looking for a Messiah who would bring peace to the land. Social, uh, military, geopolitical. They were to bring peace. The disciples were looking for the same thing. They're thinking when the Messiah comes, we are golden. It's smooth running when the Messiah gets here. And, and there's a reason for that. I mean, there are scriptures in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 2 and 11, that spoke about the nature of when the Messiah comes, the lion will lay down with the lamb. And swords will be beaten into plowshares. So this idea of peace is clearly there, that he's coming to bring peace. But the peace that Jesus was bringing was different than what they expected. Not just in timing, they expected peace to immediately come. And that's not the case. But it was also the type of peace. They were thinking social, geopolitical, military. That's the kind of peace they were thinking. But Jesus was bringing a different kind of peace. It's a peace that's going to come through conflict. It's really important for us to understand. The applications are profound. That a peace will come through the conflict. You notice that he says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword is an instrument of violence. A sword is a weapon. A sword brings about conflict. And so to say, I've come to bring a sword, yes, he's going to bring peace. He's the prince of peace. The angels announced when he was born that peace would be upon the land. There will be a peace, but it's going to come through the violence of the cross. See, Jesus brings a peace between God and man, but the peace comes about through the shedding of his blood, 
the beating of his body, the bearing of sin to redeem and restore and adopt us. That's the peace he's coming to bring. So when the kingdom of God crashes into the kingdom of man, sparks will fly. That the kingdom will always divide first before it unites. We see this in the ministry of the Lord. We see it in John chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 9. This man is not from God, they say, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. Jesus causes division. The gospel causes division. He says in in John 10, there was again a division among the Jews because of his words. So there's a conflict that comes. Now, that's true in general, but look at what he does in verse 35. He makes it specific. In 35, he says, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is where you get all your in-law stuff here. But, but he's come to set, and the conflict is going to take place in the family. Now, I'm speaking about a specific conflict. I'm not speaking about a conflict such as kind of a, a, a cultural conflict, like when I was growing up. So I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and if you had long hair, you were super cool, like really long hair. The longer, the cooler. My dad thought crew cuts were super cool. And so we had much conflict growing up over this kind of generational cultural gap. Or or there's conflict in our homes over a technological gap. Tommy Tommy and I can square off all the time when he won't show me how to turn on the television set because we've got so many of those little things lined up that we need his help. I'm not speaking about that conflict. I'm speaking about the conflict that comes when you as a member of a home come in and proclaim an allegiance to Christ. I'm talking about a conflict that comes in. When you come into a home and this family has been operating under a certain system and you introduce a new king in a home where everybody wants to be king, there's going to be conflict there. Jesus himself experienced this. In fact, in Matthew 13, we're going to read this in the fall. He says, are not all his sisters with us? Now, this is the town and his friends and his family. They're kind of taking issue with Jesus because he's making such bold statements. He says, are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? In other words, we know him. We know him. Who does he think he is? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. This is really true. J.C. Ryle, the great preacher in London in the 19th century, said this, he said, the object of his first coming on earth was not to set up a kingdom in which all would be of one mind, but to bring the gospel which would lead to strife and division. We have no right to be surprised if we see this continually fulfilled. We are not to think it strange if the gospel rends asunder families and causes estrangement between the nearest relations. It is sure to do so in many cases because of the deep corruption of man's heart. So long as one man believes and another remains unbelieving, so long as one is resolved to keep his sins and another desirous to give them up, the result of the preaching of the gospel must needs be division. For this, the gospel is not to blame, but the heart of man. I'm sure you see this in some measure in your own family. Does your family know you're a Christian? And what has it introduced to the relationship? I shared last week about the struggle for my father and I when I began moving out of the Catholic Church and began worshiping Christ, 
and his offense and, and with my brother who would not speak to me on the issue. We don't want to talk about it. We're not going to talk about it here. We have a relationship outside of Christ. Don't bring it in. Or Carol and her family. I know many of you have had issues when, okay, we're just going to leave religion out of the room now. You know, or if you're going to be a Bible thumper now, or, or the expressions, oh, you're going to be one of them. So it, there's, there's a measure of conflict that I'm sure many of you have experienced. And if you haven't, ask yourself, do they know you're a Christian? I'm not looking to bake up a bunch of conflict. It, it will come clearly and very naturally. But do they know you're a Christian? See, the Christian understands the conflict and opposition don't mean the gospel has failed. The Christian understands that conflict and opposition doesn't indicate anything about the weakness of the gospel. We expect to find it because of the gospel. Jesus told us. Why? Well, this is hard to understand fully. It's easy to understand. It's hard to grasp. But God chooses to advance his kingdom through conflict. It's the point of the cross. Out of the cross comes peace. Out of death comes life. Out of poverty comes riches. God is a paradoxical God. He, he does things through conflict, and he advances it. I mean, we know in Acts 14, that through many trials and tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. So I want you to be aware of that. So when you, when you do walk out your faith, when you do speak about your faith, conflict should not be a surprise. Why, though, the conflict? Well, the gospel offends our sensibilities. And this is where the conflict ought to come. The conflict ought to not come from our overzealousness or our boisterousness or our arrogance. Sometimes Christians, sadly, we can be very arrogant. When we come to understand the glory of God and someone doesn't, that can tilt instead of into a humility, like, why do I know this? To an arrogance, I know this and you don't. And when we have conflict from that, that's, you know, we're creating our own problems. But conflict comes from the gospel offending our sensibilities. Think about it. If you have a family, and your family's religious, and they look at themselves, as we go to church, we do this, and they look at their religion as a means of appealing to God, they look at the things they do as a means of putting them in, hey, yeah, God should be happy with me. I mean, most families that are religious would be shocked if God thought anything less of them. I mean, they would probably think God's somewhat impressed by all their labor in the church and, and all their faithfulness. And then you introduce to them the gospel that you have to repent of your religion, just like John the Baptist did, by the way, when the Pharisees came. He said, repent and be baptized. They were the religious. Do we have to, when you call a religious person to repent, that's a problem. It offends people. It's a scandal to the Jews. That's why the Jews had such trouble with Jesus. Or if you're raised in a secular family where they have got along in life just fine and if you, you are what you make yourself to be and you come along and tell them, no, this battered, beaten, bloodied body, you've got to have faith in him to save you from yourself and your sins. Hey, that was priests 18th century. We've been doing fine. Since the Industrial Revolution, we've been okay. It's going to cause conflict. So understand that to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, will bring you into conflict with your family. This is why I love the church. And, and, and we, as leadership in the church, we often fail. 
There's no question about that. We, we fail you in, in word and deed, and uh, I know you, most people have experiences with the church that have been unpleasant. And it, it grieves us as a leadership team. It grieves us when you walk through it. It grieves us when we do it. Um, it's, it's like one time we were given one of the kids, Katie was sick, and we gave her this medicine, and um, she started getting sick, and we thought, we better give her more medicine. She kept getting sick, and so being the, you know, we were kind of the bright bulbs in the pack, we kept giving her medicine, which she kept getting sick, and after about two days, we started putting two and two together, and we thought, hey, dummy, if you take the medicine away, she might stop throwing up, and, and in fact, she did. You hate it when you bring pain upon the one you love, and so, you know, the church, where your biological family has conflict over the gospel, God has raised up the church to be a spiritual family where you find unity around the gospel. God has raised up the church to be a place of rescue and hope and joy for you in the midst of the conflict with the family. So yes, you'll face opposition over the gospel with your biological family. And so God in mercy raises up the church. Paul in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 says to Timothy, says, hey, treat the older men like your father. And treat the older women like your mother. And treat the younger men like your brothers. And treat the younger, sister, uh, the younger women like your sisters. Why? We're a family. We are to be a family. And, and can you not imagine if you had this great travail of struggle in your family, and yet you came to a family? When I came to faith in Christ, the church that Carol and I were going, it was very receptive, very encouraging, very hope-filled and helpful for us. Did they have all their oars in the water? No, they didn't. Did they do it all right? No, they didn't. But they were welcoming of us, and we found unity in the gospel, around the gospel. So, so where we have failed, where you have experienced, don't turn aside. In the conflict that will come to you from the gospel in your family, the massage, the ointment, the help is to come from the church. So that's the first thing to expect. I want you to expect opposition, run to the church and find unity, an eternal family. The biological families that you have are temporal. The group in here among the believers is eternal. Okay, the second thing you, point, you see here is a preeminent love. Discipleship involves a preeminent love for Christ. Look what he says in 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, Jesus is saying that the disciple it has an absolute love for Jesus. Jesus is saying this more than you do your own family. Now, Jesus obviously isn't disparaging of families. He knows that God established it. He also knows that it's the only command with a promise that if you honor your father and mother, it will go well with you. Jesus knows that the highest social obligation for the Jewish person was to honor their parents. What he's saying here, though, is there can be an inordinate love. By inordinate, I mean an over-the-top love for good things that displace ultimate things. In other words, there can be such a love that you have for your children or children can have for parents that actually ruins discipleship. Jesus wouldn't celebrate this love. He would condemn it. He'd condemn this overdeveloped love that we have for our families. Why? Because he's to be loved supremely, preeminently. 
Now listen, if he wasn't God, this would be the height of narcissism and it would be pure idolatry. But if he is God, it makes total sense. You should love the one who's given life to all things and sustains life. You should. It makes total sense. Note here, too, for just a minute, that it's not the precision of our doctrine that saves us. It's not what we know. In a way, and and I'm going to say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, it's not even what you believe. It is those things. But it's also, do you love them? He says here, you're not worthy to be a disciple unless we're having this growing love for God. Now, I I know that I'm stepping on thin ice here, um, but I think many of us, not just in the church, but in the church in general, in the culture, we're drunk on family-centeredness. We're drunk on it. It is life for us. And I don't want to operate with a hammer. I want to operate with a scalpel. And uh, so I would ask you to ask yourself, what is the relationship between your love for your family and your love for Christ? What is the relationship? It's a hard thing to measure. You can look at things like, where do I spend the most amount of my time worrying? Or where do I spend the most of my time rejoicing? Or, Or what am I willing to avoid in terms of costs to protect my family from influences. Don't do ministry if you want to protect your family from influences. Where do I, you know, the problem is the family, as we're called to love it, can be a distraction to love Christ. The more we love the family, it becomes a denial of it. The irony here, here's the irony. The irony is that if we love our family inordinately, you really can't love Christ absolutely. But if you love Christ absolutely, you can love your family rightly. Jonathan Edwards says, the f- he says the fountainhead of all godly affections is affection for Christ. So you love Christ first, then you can really love your family selflessly. So many of us, we tend to love our families in some respects because we're living vicariously through them. You know, we, education or sports or extracurricular activities, or we want them to have all the things that somehow we didn't have. I don't know why that makes them better children, but, but just challenge yourself on this. I don't want you walking away saying Tom's against the family. Tom isn't against the family. Tom loves his family. I just don't want to love my family more than I love Christ. So ask yourself that. Where are you? Ask your spouse and give them the freedom to tell you the truth. Do I love my family more than I love Christ? And how would you see that in my life? Remember, love for Christ is always revealed in what you do and how you say and, and how you behave. So, so that, but, but Jesus doesn't just park it on the family. Look at what else he says in 38. He says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The same language, not worthy of me. What he's saying here is, if you want to be a disciple, you have to preeminently love Jesus even more than yourself. More than yourself. In other words, you have to, he says, if you don't take up your cross, if you don't deny yourself, you're not worthy of me. Now, what's interesting about this is, they, this is only the second mention of the cross, And they didn't understand about the cross of Jesus. But they did understand about the nature of the cross. 
In fact, Josephus, a Jewish historian at the time, uh, around 60, 70 AD, he wrote about a Galilean revolt. So there was a revolt among the Jewish people against the Roman army that was squashed by the power of the Roman army. And they crucified between 200 and 2,000 men in Galilee. This would have happened probably in the first 25 years of Jesus' life. Can you imagine? When it says take up your cross, they would have had a very clear understanding of what it meant. You see 200 to 2,000 men hanging on crosses, you would have it burned in your mind what it meant to take up your cross. So when Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me, this would have been massively sobering. Our crosses, when we hear, well, that's my cross to bear, it isn't a harsh husband, it's not a delinquent child, it's not a bad job, it's not poor health. Taking up a cross meant to die. It meant to die. The guy taking up his cross, his accolades and accomplishments, they're toast. Any future plans and dreams, they're gone. It's one way to the place of execution and you die. That's what the cross meant. Now, of course, everybody, Jesus isn't saying everybody will physically die as he did and the apostles and many others throughout the centuries. He's speaking about a self-denial. He's talking about a walking away from the self-absorption we can be caught up in. He's talking about this self-renunciation, this self-abnegation of my life. I'm laying down my life and all of my personal goals and ambitions, and I'm going to submit myself to God. So he's talking, that's discipleship. Now, I know right now you're feeling guilty. By God's grace, we have the gospel, and we can seek forgiveness and greater grace. But let's just continue to walk through this to make sure we fully understand it. To take up his cross. Let me, write to you, let me read for you what A.W. Tozier wrote. He spoke about the cross being a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the man completely and for good. Did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel. It struck hard. And when it had finished its work, the man was no more. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, the German theologian who died at the very end of World War II, said this. He said, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Bids him to come and die. It's like, the, it's like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. If you remember that story, there's a young man, rich man, comes up to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, I've kept those since my youth up. He says, okay, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And it says that the man went away sad because he was rich. He didn't want to part with that. He didn't want to give up that one thing that he was really trusting in and hoping for and enjoying. He didn't want to give it up. And he went away and he didn't follow Jesus. Now, he doesn't call all of us to this same thing, but that's an example of holding on to not deny yourself something that God may be asking you to lay down. Now, this seems very hard, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like you and I have a lot of nice things that we're pursuing and have a lot of dreams and ambitions that seem godly. They seem right. They seem good. They seem okay. 
And to lay it down seems awful harsh. But look at his reasoning. Look at the logic in 39. Look at what he says. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what does this mean? Well, in the context, I think it's whoever keeps his life, whoever doesn't lay down those things that God may be calling him to lay down, whoever tries to avoid the costs associated with the cross, whoever avoids the costs associated with following, he goes, you'll lose it. You'll have it for a while, but it will be no more. There's a temporal end to everything in this life. All the things that we lift up and pay homage to, whether it's bodies or technology or money or security or popularity or position and work or climbing the ladder, all those things have a temporal lifespan to them. The logic is if you lose it, you'll gain it forever. He's saying you lay it down and you will have it forever. It's a profound thing that he is giving us here, this logic coming to us and saying, if you lay it down, you'll have it forever. I think about, I came across a story from a woman by the name of Ida Scudder, and she was uh, a daughter of a, of a medical missionary, both her father and her grandfather. And she was, I think she was born in maybe 1890, 1860, I forget, late 1800s. And uh, so there were medical missionaries in India. Uh, she came, they came back for a time, lived in Nebraska. She loved America enjoyed it thoroughly, and wanted to live here forever. Made friends, and the whole life before she was in school, she went to uh, Bible school at Moody and, uh, and wanted to just settle down, meet a man, get married, and have a nice life. Well, she had to travel to India to help her father for a short time because her mother was ill. And when she was there, uh, three women came that night, three pregnant women, two Hindus and one Muslim, and they came and they were having terrible problems in the end of their pregnancy. And uh, she said, well, they asked her to help. She was a woman, and she goes, well, I'm not a doctor, but let me get my father. He's a doctor. And, and they, they said, well, our religion precludes a man, strange man, from dealing with a woman in this context of having a baby. All three went away sad. She had a terrible night, she speaks about, and the struggle that she had wrestling with God over this issue. And... Um, she didn't want to live in India. She wanted to live in America. She wanted to do what she wanted to do in America. And uh, anyways, wrestled the whole night through in prayer with God. And uh, in her words, she met God face to face, metaphorically, and God called her to India. And so she went back to America, was I think in the first class of women to graduate from Cornell Medical School, went over to India, spent her life, established the first women's clinic that is the biggest clinic um, women's clinic in India, still receiving recognition even to this day. She laid, I mean, that, that's a big deal. She laid down her life. Now, that's an example of how God can call us. I don't want yours to look like hers. Yours is different. It, it, laying down your life isn't bemoaning, well, I got to give this up now for Jesus. It's joyful. Why? Because you lay it down, you keep it. There's logic to this. It isn't just biblical truth. It's logical. It, it may be for you, it, in financial terms, it may be letting go of some of your financial strength and move it, moving it to advance the kingdom. In social terms, it may be you're striving so hard to be with this group of people that you really think are just the end of everything and wanting to be with them and walking away from that and saying, no, they're leading me on a path that's not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. I'm moving away from that. 
Or it may be in personal terms that you have a right to still be, you know, you've got some unreconciled conflict and they haven't come to you about it. You're going to lay down your right to be right. You're going to go pursue that person and seek reconciliation. It may be in more commercial terms or your work, you know, where, where you're not going to play the corporate ethic of getting up the ladder, you're going to follow the ethics of Christ. And it may cause your career to stagnate because you're honest, you're truthful, you share credit. This is what I mean, laying down your life. It may be something simple in your home as a husband or wife that you actually take five minutes today and think, what would encourage my spouse with a measure of grace? And go do it. It may be thinking, who in this church is single that I would love to have for dinner at my house? Yeah, I've got a busy week, but I'm going to have them over anyways and just enjoy them or get to know them better. It can be simple like that. But it's this denial of self. And remember again, it's tied to the love. You're not worthy of me if you love yourself more than you love him. It's a hard, hard word, I know. And that's why I'm so thankful we get to 40 and 41 and 42. Because Jesus is now encouraging us. He says, yeah, the road of discipleship is challenging. It is littered with challenges. You're challenged by the opposition from family. You're called to suffer the costs of, of, of putting Jesus above your It's easier to love your family. They're right here with you. It's easier to love yourself because it feels so good. But look at what he says. He encourages us here in 40. He says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person. Note the motivation why we're receiving these people. He says, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, I say to you will by no means lose his reward. Now, let me just give you a, a, a contextual understanding here. A lot of times we take this verse out, and we use it to apply, hey, if you serve somebody at the soup kitchen, you're giving them a cup of cold water and your works will never be forgotten. Well, that is a great work and I want to encourage you to do it. I don't think the passage is supporting that. Think about what he's doing here. This is why we want to read the Bible with a degree of alertness. In 40, Jesus is speaking to his apostles and he says, whoever receives you... So he's speaking first to the apostle. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So I think fundamentally, Jesus is saying to us, he's encouraging those of us who will go out, just like the apostles were, I'll take care of you. I will raise up people who will receive you and welcome you. The word to receive means to welcome or care for. In a Middle Eastern context, it really speaks about the nature of of even sheltering, even feeding. So, So this idea of, Jesus is encouraging his apostles to go out. And he's encouraging us. That You remember just a few weeks ago? Take no staff, take no bag, take no extra sandals. Why? I'm going to provide for you. And that's what he's saying here. I think he's encouraging the first level of application of this sermon or of this text would be encouraging us. Oh, I'll take care of you. I'll raise people up. They'll feed you. They'll receive you. They'll care for you. But he does come to us. And if you see in verse 41, he says, but he shifts. He says, the one who receives a prophet. So now he's not talking about those being sent, but the ones receiving those being sent. So it's in the context of the church here. And and, and the believers, he says, the one who receives a prophet. What I love about this is he's encouraging us that when we receive a prophet 
or we receive a righteous person or even a little one, we will receive a reward that God has intended us to know, I will honor you. I will reward you for your service. You notice that there's no favoritism here, whether it's a prophet or a little one. The little, little one probably doesn't mean a child because the rest of the verse explains it's a disciple. But let's say an insignificant disciple. So it doesn't matter. Receive the prophet, the big dog, but also receive the one who seems like a small part of the church. You receive the same reward. You're blessed by serving in that capacity. Not only does it not show favoritism, God isn't also more impressed by the huge gifts we may give versus those who give just a little bit. Even a cup of cold water, he says. So so the gift is not measured by its size, but by the motivation of it, because he's my disciple. It's pretty helpful for us to know that, 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 that God doesn't, you know, the person who doesn't have the financial means, who can't give the financial gift, they give a small gift, an insignificant gift to what seems like an insignificant disciple. And God says, I'm all over that. I see that. I'll reward that. It's encouraging. It's encouraging, isn't it? I mean, the fact that you can minister to one another acts of kindness and God sees it. And not only does he see it, he sees it because you're ministering to him. Notice that that little kind of chain going up verse 40. If you receive this person, then you receive Jesus. And if you receive this person bringing Jesus, then you receive God who sent Jesus. You're serving God. You know, that's why, you know, you can see the mark of God in the faces of the people you serve, because when you serve somebody for the glory of God, because they're a disciple, you are to see God in them because you're serving God by serving them. We see this clearly, don't we, in Matthew 25? In Matthew 25, Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, right? And he separates them based upon what they've done. And Jesus says to the sheep who are going to be coming into the kingdom of glory, he says, well, you fed me when I was hungry, you clothed me when I was naked, and you gave me water when I was thirsty. And I love the integrity of the sheep, because they say, really? We didn't ever see you. We didn't serve you. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm thinking, well, okay, I'm going along with the group. But they have the honesty enough to say, we didn't see you. He goes, well, when you did it to the least of my brothers, it's the same thing here. It's the same exact thing. When you did it to the least of my brothers, you're serving God. Do you, do you get the concept that you're not just serving so-and-so, But when they're coming to you in the name of Christ, serving you, and you receive them, you're serving God. But not only that, he doesn't miss a thing. Jesus doesn't miss a thing. His eyes are on his disciples, watching them. Even the little things, even the things that don't get noticed by us, get noticed by him. So I want to encourage us that that this discipleship that involves conflict with family and this this, uh, discipleship that involves costs is rewarded. It's blessed. It's graced. Now, how do you move in this? I mean, how can you begin moving in this? Well, I, I would just ask you to do one thing and, and just mull it over today. Is uh, Don't just ponder your life. I want you to do that. I want you to ponder heaven. You know, if we were living 100 years before now, people back then thought more about life and death. They thought more about, you know, their life was, was more brutish. It was shorter. It was more filled with pain. There weren't all the medical things. There weren't the ways that we can keep life going. They didn't have. Death seemed to be more at the door. It wasn't as sanitized as we, we do it. We're digging the holes. We're hauling you to the hole. I mean, it was much more in your face, and now it's not so. I would ask you to ponder life and death. I'd ask you to ponder heaven. 
As pilgrims, we are called to be pondering heaven. And I would ask you to ponder it, because as you ponder heaven, as you think about Christ, as you think about seeing him, then there's going to be a natural willingness to be more sacrificial, to be more generous, to be more charitable. When you think about seeing Christ, you're going to want to bear more fruit. You're not going to fear death to the degree that you do now when you begin thinking about Christ reigning at the right hand. It's going to to draw you from the fear of death as you begin to ponder the reality of what is next with him. As he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. So, So we're at the end of chapter 10. It's been a chapter all on discipleship, if you've noticed. The call of it, the cost of it, the expectations of it. That, that today, simply this, that as a disciple, you're going to hit conflict. That doesn't mean the gospel has failed. In fact, the gospel's working to bring about peace through the conflict. And, and to be a disciple it means that you're going to seek to love Christ supremely. Many of us are guilty right now. I don't want you to rest in guilt. I want you to move to the gospel. I want you to see that he has died for that. Repent and be thankful for the grace that he gives to us. And if you haven't thought about your rewards, you haven't really done any service to the saints, you haven't gone out of your way, you haven't sacrificed yourself, then just appeal to God and say, I come to you and I am guilty as charged. Forgive me. Give me grace. Give me strength to want to think and desire these rewards. That's really the life of the Christian, really, It's faith and repentance, faith and repentance, faith and repentance. I repent of my sins, I believe. No, I'm accepted through the gospel and I'm moving forward. So so let's take this, think about the rewards, think about the goodness of God. We'll have a short time of prayer. I'll begin, an elder will close us. And uh, if you have any questions, if I've I've hurt you unnaturally, particularly with the love of family, then please come forward. I'm, I'm not seeking to do that. I'm seeking to hold Christ as so supreme that you would love him above all things. And um, an elder will close us in a minute. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us. The, yeah, just the sweetness and the kindness that you have in calling us to follow you, that even though we will face opposition, you faced it first. Even though we will face costs, great costs, you faced them first and you transformed them for us. And you have been rewarded with the souls of the people that you've saved. Give us the heart that wants the reward of seeing you face to face.